right, we are going to be in Exodus chapter 10 today, looking at the 8th and ninth plagues, so we're getting near the end of the plagues. Uh, and I titled this one, Never Forget. This comes, it's kind of from the beginning of this passage. There's, there's gonna, God's going to talk about how Moses should remember this uh, time, remember these events, and, and tell, he t- kind of tells him, you need to pass it on. You need to make sure that as a people, you never forget this. And that's something that we can identify with, right? There are things that we say in our own history that we will never forget, right? That was the sentiment that was uh, put out when, um, when the bombing of Pearl Harbor happened. Uh, that was something people said, we, we need to always remember that this happened. That's something that we've said in relation to 9-11, as well, we would say never forget. And you think about why do we say never forget? Because there are events that change things forever. Right? There are events that, that we want to make sure never happen again, and so we want to make sure that we remember what happened so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past and so we remain vigilant, so there are things that we, so that we will live differently, and not only for us, but for our children and for our grandchildren. We want to pass that on. We want those to be big historic events that are always remembered. And that's what, what the sentiment that, that God is going to pass on to Moses here, we'll see in just a second. And it's important that we remember as well that Exodus is, is a foreshadowing of the gospel. This whole narrative is a foreshadowing and will be used in the New Testament to, to, for Jesus to show what he is doing. Right, that The whole time we read this, the entire time we read this, we should see the enslavement in Egypt is parallel to our enslavement in sin. And, and therefore, the exodus and the, the work that God does to rescue his people from Egypt is paralleled with Jesus' work on the cross to rescue us from our slave, slavery and sin. Right? Those are something we should always be thinking about because that's the lesson that we are to take is that we parallel these things together. And so in the same way that they must never forget where they came from and what God did to rescue them, so we must never forget where we came from and what God did to rescue us. Let's get into it. We're going to start off with locusts. Locusts, we're going to look at verses 1 through 20 of chapter 10. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts, into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on, this, on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve Yahweh their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? 
So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve Yahweh your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to Yahweh. And he said to them, Yahweh be with you. If ever I let you go, if I ever, if ever I let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve Yahweh, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and Yahweh brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against Yahweh your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with Yahweh your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with Yahweh, and Yahweh turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. Okay, so a couple things to point out from that narrative. First, he tells them in the beginning, like I, like I started talking about, he says, tell your grandchildren. You're going to tell your grandchildren about this. He's orchestrated all of these events to reveal himself to Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and most importantly, the Israelites. Yahweh wants to show them who he is, right? These events are defined his relationship to his people, right? That he's their rescuer, their redeemer, their savior, their Lord, that he's powerful, more powerful than these false gods. He's showing them who he is. And he says, you're going to tell your grandchildren about these things. Now that, think about that message for Moses. That's, that's a couple, they saying a couple things there, right? First of all, he's saying, you're going to live to see your grandchildren, which at this point, you know, he, every time he comes to see Pharaoh, Pharaoh's getting angrier and angrier. You got to think every time it takes more and more courage for Moses to go before Pharaoh because Pharaoh at any moment could tell him, like, you know, hey, cut this guy's head off. And so it's taking this, this courage, hey, you're going to tell your grandchildren about this. You're going to live to see your grandchildren. But it's also this command that's going to be repeated over and over again in Scripture, and it's repeated in Deuteronomy. Of the first five books of the Bible, Deuteronomy is the last one, and it's kind of a, a summary. It's actually three sermons, really long sermons, that Moses put together that he's telling the, the Israelites before they enter the Promised Land. And so it's all these kind of final instructions that Moses has for the Israelites. And he, in, in uh, chapter 6, he talks about this. Deuteronomy 6, 20 through 24, he says, when your son asks you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that Yahweh our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. 
And Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And Yahweh showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. And Yahweh commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear Yahweh our God for our good always, that he may may preserve us alive as we are this day. So think about what that's saying, right? He's, He's saying... When your son asks you, why do we have these, why do we live by these rules? Or why do we live by these commands? Why do we follow these things? What's the point? First of all, he says, tell him we were slaves in Egypt. Whoever he's telling this to was never a slave in Egypt. At least they don't remember it. Because this is to the generation that's going into the promised land. None of that generation was slaves in Egypt, unless they were little, little kids. And so, He's saying, we as a people, our history, we were slaves in Egypt. This collective, historic we, not just him alone. And he's saying, like, we live this way, we follow God's commands because he rescued us. He's saying, we live in response. He rescued us not before we were obeying the commands. We weren't living so well and obeying the commands so well that God decided to rescue us. No, he rescued us from Egypt. And then we live this way. We follow these commands. Again, take that to take take that and put that on top of our narrative of Jesus rescuing us from slavery and sin. And it, it becomes the same narrative. It's we were slaves in sin. We we slaved to our sin to our former life. And Jesus rescued us, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it. We weren't living a certain way at that point. And he rescued us, and so now we live in response. We want to obey him. We want to follow him. We want to live how he lives. We want to become like him because he rescued us, not so that he would rescue us. Do you see that? It's the same, like that's, this is so important because everybody rags on the Old Testament all the time, right? Everybody always gets down on the Old Testament and is like, oh, the Old Testament, they had to obey all those rules and they had to follow those commands so they could be saved. It's the narrative is the same. It's God rescued them and then he gave them this way of life and said, now live this way to honor me. They're still living in response. They're still living in response the same way that we do. We live in response to what God has done. We don't earn our salvation. We live in response to the fact that he rescued us when there was nothing we could do. He also has this message for Pharaoh where he says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Right? Moses comes before Pharaoh and he says, this is what God says to you. This is God's message for you. Is How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? He's saying essentially Pharaoh has a choice. His choice is humility or humiliation. He's saying you're either going to humble yourself before me or you will be humbled before me. You'll be humiliated before me. And that's a choice that we all make. We, we all have the choice to stand opposed to God or to humble, humble ourselves before him. <coughs> that's the choice that we make, is to either humble ourselves before him or be opposed to him. That's the only choice that there is because there's nowhere we can go to escape him. But there's peace, there's benefit to be found in such humility. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. He says, He has a command first. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, 
casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Right? He kind of points out that as we humble ourselves, as we say, God, no, you are above me. Your wisdom is above mine. Your power is greater than mine. You are in control. You know the right thing to do. That as we admit that, as we stop trying to control our own lives, it becomes easier for us to give our anxieties to him. Or to give our fears, to give our worries, to give those things to him as we humble ourselves. He connects these two things. He says, humble yourselves, casting your anxieties on him. They're connected. But Pharaoh refused to do that. Now, now ho- I kind of hope that you're, um, that you're bothered by this idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. That it's this, that it's this like t- tough thing. It's, a, it's really hard. It's a really hard concept in Scripture. We're going to talk about that next week. I've been promising we were going to do, we're going to talk about it. Next week will be all about that, okay? All right. All right, we also see Pharaoh's servants in revolt here. Right, Pharaoh's servants, they're, they're mad. They're like, Pharaoh, how long are we going to let this guy keep bothering us? Just let the people go. We're going to be ruined. Like they're, they're worried about it. They're done with it. And you think about that defiance. Pharaoh was a god to them. Pharaoh was divine. And to, to defy him in that way, to, to object in front of him, that would have, now he, they could have been killed for that insubordination, but they see just how, uh, how terrifying this is. Their fear has shifted. Right? Their fear has shifted from being afraid of Pharaoh to being afraid of Yahweh. They're saying, this is no longer, there's no longer a competition. We're much more afraid of this. And Pharaoh actually listens to them and calls Moses back in. And he starts his compromise, right? He makes this compromise. He says, he tries to make another deal with Moses. He wants them to leave their women and children behind while the men go and worship. He's saying, send your men, leave your women and children behind. Leave your flocks behind. Just take the men, you go worship. And, and then you can come back and keep serving, essentially, is what he's, he's hoping here. And Pharaoh is outraged that Moses won't take him up on this offer. Right? Because he's already tried. This is not the first time he's tried to wheel and deal. During the fourth plague, he asked them to sacrifice within the land. He's saying, just let the sacrifice here. And, and then he goes, we'll just go a little bit away. Don't go too far away. Stay close. Right? He wants to, he's trying to compromise. But God's not going to compromise with Pharaoh. He wants him to, to let his people leave Egypt and stop serving Pharaoh altogether. And this is, again, true for us. And this, this dealing that Pharaoh does, trying to make a deal, trying to compromise, that's what happens with us too. With a, again, if we, if we make this parallel between slavery in Egypt to slavery in sin, that happens all the time. And our, and our sin tries to make these same kind of deals with us. You know, don't go too far away, just on the weekends, just at night. Like, just, just keep it, stay close by in case you need to come back to your sin. We try to make these deals all the time, or we try to make it so that we can work together. But God's not interested in that. He's not interested in this deal with Pharaoh, and he's not interested in your deals with your sin. And once again, there's another God that's being attacked here. Min is the protector of the crops. The, he, the, the Egyptian god Min was the, uh, was the protector of the crops. I was going to put a, 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 a picture of the idol up, but it's too graphic. Um, so if you want to look that, if you want to look it up later, you can, uh, Min. And, uh, it's, 
it's, it's interesting because it's likely, there, there's, I, didn't, I haven't gotten too much into this because it's, it's somewhat hypothetical, but there's people that try to determine when exactly in the year these different plagues hit. And they try to time it out. They go, okay, well, it probably started here, and then this would have happened in this many weeks. They, they like, kind of graph it out. And it's just not that worth it. But interesting thing here, <laughs> it's kind of interesting here because it's possible with those timelines that they make that this plague actually hit during the festival that was dedicated to men, to this God. So that during his festival, this plague hits, and he's the protector of the crops. So again, another, like, all-out assault on Egyptian, the Egyptian pantheon of gods. And now we have, this is the, the most extreme locust invasion ever, right? That's what they're saying. There's never been before. There never was again. Now, they've seen locusts before, right? This is a, a, something that does happen, and it actually does happen all over the continent of Africa in general. But now the locusts are going to come, right? They, and it's going to be the worst swarm of locusts that's ever happened ever. And that's saying something. I, I got a quick video for you to see if you've never seen locusts or know what that looks like. Check this out. We'll watch this. It's from, uh, you know, Planet Earth. It's a great, great thing. There should be sound, too. There we go. From that. Okay, that's incredible. Like, I can't imagine what that would be like to live in that. Um, now, part of the reason that I wanted to show that to you is because it's not only, not only is the Exodus, it's a foreshadowing of the cross and, and Jesus' work and, and that salvation, but it's, th- there's also foreshadowing of, of these plagues uh, are also often foreshadowing the end, right? foreshadowing events of, in Revelation. And we see this, uh, this locust, the, this locust plague is actually foreshadowed as well. We saw it already with the very first plague. There's a section of Revelation we looked at. It talks about the, the sea turning to blood, right? And that not only the, the Nile, but now all the sea is turned to blood. Here in Revelation, we see a foreshadow that the, the locust plague is, is played out in a, in a crazy way. And imagine that even amplified more here. Revelation chapter 9, verses 3 through 10 Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were, that looked, were, that were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Yikes. <laughs> right, so that's, again, this idea that we have to repeat, that like if we either choose to humble ourselves or God will humble us. Like God will have victory in the end. In the end, every knee will bow. 
whether it's bowed willingly or whether it is made to bow. And so we see Pharaoh again in this another round of false repentance. He's not really repentant, but he says that he is, right? He says that he, he again, he says, I've sinned. But then he says, he says it like this time, like it's the only time that he's ever sinned. And he actually implies, he says like, you know, this is the, forgive me only this once. Like I only need once. I've never needed it before and I'm not going to need it again. This is the time I need forgiveness, right? He's not, he's not breaking. He wants forgiveness to relieve this current predicament. He wants to end this current plague. He's not willing to truly submit to Yahweh's authority. And that's the difference, is are we willing to truly, fully submit and surrender to him or not? Let's look at the, the ninth plague here, darkness, verses 21 through 29. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. And they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve Yahweh. Your little ones may go with you, may go, also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. Our livestock must go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must, take, we must take of them to serve Yahweh our God, and we do not know with what we must serve Yahweh until we arrive there. But Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. So once again, uh, this is an attack on, on the Egyptian gods. They really worshipped the sun. They had a, a god of the sunrise, a god of the midday sun, a god of the sunset. Um, their, their kind of big god, Amun-Re, was considered the ultimate god of the Egyptian, pan, Egyptian pantheon, and he was represented by the sun, right? His symbol was, one of his symbols was the sun. Pharaoh himself was considered to be the living embodiment of the sun. He was, so this is a, a big thing for them. And, and you're plagued with a darkness that can be felt. A darkness that can be felt. It seems more extreme than just blotting out the sun and the moon. It seems like there's something more here going on than just blotting out the sun and the moon. It seems actually, we talked about this before, that we can see these plagues often as a decreation, right? As like a reversal of God's creative goodness. And, and in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, God actually, he doesn't create the sun first. He creates the concept of light. If you remember this from Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Right, so... It's almost like here this darkness that descends on Egypt is, is more the concept of light itself is removed, right? That, there, that it seems like even artificial light sources would have been ineffectual, right? That there's, there's more to it than just the sun and the moon going away. It's hard to exactly piece out. But even verse 23 where it says, but the 
Israelites had light in the places where they lived, right? So somehow they have light and the Egyptians don't have light. It seems like that would have to come from artificial sources, not from the sun. But it's hard to say exactly what this was like. But we can also see that the Egyptian darkness was not only physical, but spiritual darkness. And yet Pharaoh still refuses to bend to God's will. He's going to remain in darkness. But he's going he's to choose to remain in his darkness. And <coughs> we also don't fully know, did, did Moses go to him while it was still dark? Was it after the three days of darkness that he went to him? And, and Moses' final words, where he says kind of, not, you'll not see my face again, it's almost, a, it's almost him poking at or like kind of uh, talking about the fact that, that Pharaoh's going to remain in darkness. He's going to remain blinded. Because it's not actually true. Like, he he does see him again. He likely does see him again. But he's going to remain in this darkness. He's going to choose to remain blinded, remain in darkness. And, of course, there's more foreshadowing here, right? These three days of darkness. Uh, We're going to have three days of Jesus in the grave uh, as well. It's a foreshadowing of the cross. Uh, and actually, during the when Jesus is on the cross, darkness descends artificially early, or uh, descends early. God causes darkness to fall prematurely, is the word I'm looking for, uh, when he's on the cross. And of course, God talks all about, like there's so many scriptures that talk about this idea of him being represented by light and, and darkness being, being apart from him, right? That he is the light that we come to the light, that these are the ways that we talk about this. In John chapter 8, verse 12, just one example. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Pharaoh refused to come to the light. He didn't, he's not going to come to the light. He's going to remain in darkness. We can't make that same mistake. We can't make the mistake of, of remaining in our darkness, remaining in obstinate, remaining, refusing to humble ourselves and come to the light. That's what he's calling us to here, and that's what I encourage you to as well. Let's look at this. How should we then live? Three things that we might take away from here. First, never forget what Jesus has done for you and pass it on, right? Think about who am I passing it on to? I know the stories that I have. I know the experiences I've had with God. I know how he's changed my life. Who am I giving that to? Who am I passing that on to? Number two, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, right? Say, I'm willing, God, I recognize your authority over my life. I want to humble myself before you. I want to put you in your proper place as being in the place of authority, being being in charge of my life. And then lastly, follow Jesus that you may have the light of life. Let him be the light in your life, the true source of light. As I pray, um, I'd like the ushers, the elders to come forward for communion. We're going to um, share communion, remember that sacrifice that Jesus made for us that we would never forget. This is one of the things we do is, is to take communion, share communion together. Let's prepare our hearts now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the uh, opportunity we have to get into your word, to worship you, to lift your name up in song. We thank you for saving us, God. We want to remember that forever. We want to remember where we've come from. We want to remember what you've done 
in our lives, in the lives of our families, in the lives of those who have gone before us. God, in Scripture, in history, God, you are mighty. You are powerful. You are worthy of glory, worthy of worship, and we want to give that to you now. God, as we prepare for to come to the table for communion, we want to remember your sacrifice for us, that you came to earth as a baby, lived this perfect life, and then chose to go to the cross to pay for our sin, to die a death that you didn't deserve to die so that you might pay that price for us. We remember that this morning, God. In your name we pray. Amen.